Well, please do turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. And as you're turning there, I'm going to ask you the question, how many of you have experienced in your life a nightmare or a bad dream? Just raise your hand. Uh, Some of you not? Praise God. Praise God that you've been spared. Most of us have experienced a nightmare or a bad dream. Some of you have them chronically, and it is a great burden to you. Often it's in times of stress and distress when we tend to have those those fearful, anxiety-producing dreams. A couple that I remember, one was that lasted decades after college. I, um, I was always a conscientious student. I had to work for what I had. And I had this nightmare decades after college of, sh- of coming into the final exam and then realizing I haven't attended class all semester. And it was terrifying to me. Like, what was I thinking? I have no clue how to answer these questions because I, I didn't attend class all semester. Another nightmare that asked, lasted years after college was I used to compete in wrestling And you had to be in really good shape to go eight minutes on the wrestling mat. And another one of my nightmares was I had to go out on the wrestling mat and I had not been in training. And I knew I wasn't going to be able to endure. Well, there are far worse nightmares than that, for sure. But um, the best part about a nightmare is waking up and realizing as perhaps you come to consciousness in this cold sweat, oh, what I was just dreaming about is not true. It was a nightmare. It was only a dream. Well, brothers and sisters, as we come from Mark 13 into Mark 14, it's kind of the reverse of waking up from a nightmare. In chapter 13, what we have studied for several weeks, the Olivet Discourse, Jesus has been filling the minds of his disciples with the glory and power that is coming. Now, to be sure, the prediction is that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. The Roman pagan armies are going to besiege it. The temple's going to be leveled to the ground. More than a million Jews are going to die in that horrific event. But really, how we should view that upcoming event, it's all about the glory and power of Jesus Christ. Because it was God's retributive justice upon a nation that had rejected their Messiah that that came upon them. It was really a great vindication of the glory and kingship of Jesus Christ as he manifests his glory and power in the destruction of Jerusalem. And then he goes on to talk about his second coming. Whatever glory of Jesus was manifested in 70 AD, it will yield to a greater glory that will come when Jesus returns. And of course, the emphasis of that passage was to call us to be prepared, to be alert, to be watchful, because he can come at any time and we want to be ready doing something that we'll not be ashamed of when he comes. But as Jesus and the the disciples are there on the Mount of Olives and Jesus delivers this discourse, which is all about his upcoming glory and power, Mark is now going to return us to the reality that they were facing. You see, that glory was coming. Glory to Jesus in 70 AD. Ultimate glory at his return and second coming. The glory's coming. It is certain. But before Jesus could ever arrive at the Mount of Exaltation, something else must happen first. He must pass through the Valley of Humiliation. 
And so in chapter 14, Mark brings us back to the reality that Jesus and his disciples were facing even as he delivered that Olivet Discourse. Our text is simply verses 1 and 2 of Mark 14. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two weeks, two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. My first of two points is this, the plotting of Jesus' enemies against him. Notice it says the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. Matthew actually adds elders. So you have the scribes, the uh, chief priests, and the elders. That comprised the entire Jewish Sanhedrin. The entire supreme court of Judaism was out to kill Jesus. R.C. Sproul comments, he says, stop and think for a moment about what was going on here. Do not believe we can fully grasp the egregiousness of what they were doing. God himself had taken a human nature and appeared in human history to redeem his people. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. But these people hated him with every fiber of their beings. They were of one mind. Jesus had to go. And then Sproul says, was there ever a more literally diabolical conspiracy in the history of the world? The Jewish religious leaders determined to kill God in human flesh. And concerning this plotting or this scheming, I want to note three things about it. First of all, the plotting was continuous. As you know from our study of Mark's gospel, this was not the first time that Jesus' enemies plotted his death. All the way back in chapter 3, which was the early part of the Galilean ministry, Jesus went into a synagogue and there was a man with a withered hand. And the Pharisees were waiting in the wings to pounce on him, seeing if he would violate not the law of God, but their man-made Sabbath rules. And Jesus did. He said, stretch forth your hand. He healed the man. And then we read in Mark 3, 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. And then, shortly before Jesus came into Jerusalem for the last time. He raised Lazarus from the dead. And we read this in John chapter 11. And you need not turn there. I'll be there very quickly. In John 11 and verse 45 and following, we read, let me get it. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And then we read in verse 53. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. And then when Jesus comes in the triumphal entry into the city. We read this in Mark eleven seventeen and 18, which we have studied. And he began to teach and say to them, oh, 
he comes into the, into the temple and he cleanses the temple and he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. And he overturns the tables and drives out the money changers. And then the chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him for they were afraid of him for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. And then in Mark 12, 12, when Jesus tells a parable about a vineyard and, and the vine owner sends his servants and there are the prophets and, and the, the ones occupying the land kill those servants. They kill the prophets. And then he predicts that when the landowner sends his son, they will kill him. And then in Mark 12, 12, we read, and they were seeking to seize him. And yet they feared the people for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. So this wasn't the beginning of Jesus' enemies plotting to kill him. Throughout his ministry, they were plotting his death almost from the beginning. You see, it was never a matter of whether they would kill Jesus. It was only a matter of when would they do it and how would they do it. And now they're asking, how are we going to seize him? And let me just make a passing application why did his enemies so hate Jesus? Why, with every fiber of their being, did they hate him? Well, Jesus gives us the answer in John 3, when he says, men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. Jesus was the light coming into the world, and those who were of darkness were repelled by the light and wanted to extinguish the light. And you know, there's a sense in which as the followers of Jesus, we too are called to be the light of the world. And we too will experience something of that opposition that Jesus experienced. It didn't take long before the enemies of Jesus sensed what he was about and they began to oppose him and plot his death. And it doesn't take long before an unbeliever will begin to react to you as a believer once they find out what you are about. And you are light. In the midst of darkness, they will respond or react to you. Now, the Apostle Paul said that we are an aroma of Christ. To some, a savor from life to life. To others, an aroma from death to death. In other words, those in whom God is working, those who are seeking the Lord and God is seeking them, when they meet you as a Christian, they may be drawn to that light. They want to get close to you. They want to learn more about you. They want to watch you because they're intrigued, because they're becoming children of light. And to, to them, you will be a saver from life to life. Oh, this person has answers. This person has hope for me. This person has a, has a different kind of life that is attractive to me. But there will be others to whom you will be an aroma from death to death. Because they are those who love their darkness. They love their evil deeds. They hate God. And you, as the light of the world, come into their presence. They're going to be repelled by that. They're not going to be attracted to you. They're going to be uncomfortable in your presence and you will sense it, you will feel it, even as Jesus did his enemies. But not only was their plotting continuous, that was my first point. Their plotting was continuous. Their plotting was crafty. You look at the text and it tells us that they, um, there in verse 1, that they were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. The word stealth or craft is a word that means to catch with bait. Now, as you know, I enjoy fishing. So I know what it's like to catch with bait. 
I know what it's like to try to deceive my prey. When a fisherman is using live bait, the idea is to hide the hook. When we use an artificial lure, the idea is to make that lure look as realistic as possible by its color, by its movement, by its sound, to make it imitate the real thing. So when I go fishing, I'm on a mission of deceit. I'm on a mission of stealth. I'm trying to, to fool the prey. And lest I be too hard on fishermen alone, you hunters do the same thing. You get up in a tree stand, you dress in camouflage, you'll make a sound to try to make the animal think that you're the mate to attract them, right? So as hunters and fishermen, we are involved in a mission of stealth and deceit. We want to trick our prey. And these Jewish leaders were practicing stealth, deceit. You know, this is said to be a general characteristic of the natural state of the human heart. In Mark 7, where Jesus tells us what comes out of our hearts, here's the list. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, deceit. Deceit is in all of our hearts by nature. It shows up in another catalog of human sins, Romans chapter 1, 29. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. You see, it's something that's characteristic of everyone by human nature. And in Paul's closing arguments in Romans 3, where he's trying to establish that the entire human race is under sin and in need of salvation, Gentiles are sinners, Jews are sinners, he says their throat is an open grave, with their tongues they keep deceiving. Deception was what was practiced by Elymas, the magician who tried to discourage the Roman proconsul from believing the gospel Paul was sharing. It says in Acts 13.10 that Paul says to him, filled with the Holy Spirit, you who are full of deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all unrighteousness. See, the devil was the original deceiver. And we are children of the devil by nature because deceit, falsehood, is in our hearts. But the interesting thing is it is something that is conspicuously absent from the true people of God. In Revelation 14.5, there's a description of the followers of the Lamb of God, Jesus, who have been purchased by him, and they are described this way. No lie was found in their mouth. Now, if you have the, the King James, the, uh, the manuscript there is the same word as in Mark 14. If you have another uh, translation. It's another word, pseudos, as, as in pseudo or false. But of God's people purchased by the lamb, no lie was found in their mouth. Remember how Jesus looked at one particular man, Nathaniel, and gave him a very high commendation. Would to God it could be said of us, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. What you see is what you get. No guile, no deceit in this man. He's a man of truthfulness. But here we have the highest religious court in Israel, the covenant people of God, and they are guilty of this craft, this deceit. They were seeking to plot to kill Jesus, but they wanted to do it on the sly. You see, rather than openly confronting him, openly calling him out for what they believed to be his errors, they wanted to deceive the people. They said, we're going to kill him, but not during the festival. We're going to wait till the people go home. 
And then we're going to say, well, an accident befell him and, and he died and nobody would be there to witness it. Nobody would be there to corroborate it or to substantiate it. And so they wanted to kill Jesus, but in a deceitful, crafty way that would get over on the people. Well, let's pause now and think about ourselves. Well, first of all, what application can we make? One application is surely we see how rich and ripe for judgment the Jewish nation was, that they were craftily plotting to kill the Son of God. We read about that destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. It was horrific. More than a million Jews died. It was terrible. But how deserving they were of that because of the deceit in their hearts that they would plot in such a way against the Son of God. But it's also a sad commentary about the human condition in general. True human nature is deceitful. We are all liars by nature. It also points to the fact that it must be a stench to God when that kind of deceit and craftiness takes place among the people of God, when they are playing political games such as these leaders were. And yet, sadly, it happens. It happens in denominations. It happens in evangelical denominations. And it happens in churches where people craftily plan to get their way, and they form factions in order to get their way, and they have hidden agendas. And the great cause of Christ and the gospel and truth become subordinated to petty, selfish, human agendas. Well, friends, may that never be true of our little church here. But then, as followers of the Lamb, I would call you away from any practice of craftiness or deceit. See, the good news is that the gospel changes us. In Ephesians chapter 4, we are told that the old self, the person we were before we came to Christ, is characterized by the lusts of deceit. Deceit characterized us. We were living a lie. We were falling prey to deceitful lusts. Deceit was characteristic of the old person we were. But then when we become new people in Christ, we have been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And if there's anything that should characterize us as the people of God, it should be truthfulness. Our God is the God of truth. He's the author of truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. He is incarnate truth. The Holy Spirit who lives within us is the spirit of truth. And so if there's anything that should characterize us as the people of God, it should be truthfulness. And I call you away, as I call myself away from every form of craftiness, of stealth and deceit. It has no place in our lives. Now, I think it's safe to say that when we are converted, generally, if you were an overt liar, and some people are converted from being inveterate liars, usually that overt lying kind of falls away. But I caution us against the more subtle forms of deceit that we can still practice. Sometimes we tell a half-truth and represent it as the whole truth. Have you heard the little saying, a half-truth, when it's presented as the whole truth, becomes an untruth? Beware of telling a half-truth as the whole truth with the intent to deceive. We sometimes shade the truth. We can twist the truth. We can misrepresent the truth. 
You know, if I am going to represent you to someone else as to what you said, I also need to imitate how you said it. I need to tell what you said and how you said it, because if you change the tone of what a person said, you can totally turn, change the meaning, and that would be deceitful. And so we need to look out for the more subtle displays of deceit hiding in the nooks and crannies of our hearts, because we are to be a people delivered from the old life of falsehood and deceit. We need to be a people characterized as our Lord perfectly was of characterized by truthfulness. And I might say, if there's anyone here, and falsehood and lying and craftiness is characteristic of you, if it's one of your, if, if, if it's an MO of you, a modus operandi, I would say you probably need the salvation that is in Jesus Christ. You're still living with that old deceitful heart. Jesus can not only forgive you of all your deceit and lying, he can change you and put a new heart characterized by truthfulness in you. And if you're such a person, I would plead with you to come to Jesus for that new heart. Your deceptiveness, your, your deceitfulness is an indication that you're separated from the God of truth. But the God of truth is willing to forgive you by him who was the truth and died for liars like us to forgive us and give us heaven, but also to turn us into truth speakers. So the plotting was continuous. The plotting was crafty. But thirdly, the plotting was cowardly. Why did they seek to seize Jesus by stealth and to seize him on the sly? You notice what they say. We want to kill Jesus, but not during the festival. Otherwise, there might be a riot of the people. That word riot is the same word that's used in the household of Jairus' daughter when Jairus' daughter had died, 12-year-old daughter had died, and Jesus comes to that home with a purpose to raise her from the dead. But there's wailing going on. There's an uproar. That's the same word. When they thought Paul had brought a Gentile into the temple in Acts 21, there was a riot, there was a tumult, there was an uproar. And so the Jews wanted to kill Jesus secretly because they wanted to avoid a riot. They knew that Jesus would have had followers there in the, attending the feast. There would have been people from uh, Galilee there, and they didn't want to stir up a riot. And so they were cowardly. And rather than confronting Jesus head on and exposing him to the people, they said, wait till the people go home, then we'll kill him on the sly. They were cowardly. And why was it wrong? Because it was selfish. They were more concerned about themselves than they were God's truth and God's glory. If Jesus was a true danger to the people, and they were the leaders of the people. Why didn't they expose him publicly and say, these are his errors, this is his blasphemy, you need to flee from him, he's an imposter. But they didn't do that. That would have been to the glory of God, that would have been to the welfare of the people, but they didn't do that. Because they didn't care about the glory of God, they didn't care about the welfare of the people, they only cared about their own selfish agenda. They were concerned about protecting their position and their power and Jesus was robbing them of that. They were envious and jealous of him. 
Their cowardliness was rooted in a selfishness that had nothing to do with the glory of God, nothing to do with the good of the people. So do you see the connection between the craftiness of the Jews and their cowardly fear of man, both rooted in selfishness, disregard for God's glory and the good of others, not loving God, not loving their neighbors, only loving themselves, and so they plan to trick the people to fulfill their own selfish agenda. What do we learn from that, brothers and sisters? Well, again, don't we see again the ripeness of Israel for judgment? Here were the Jews, and they were heirs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses, who defied the whole empire of the Egyptians. David, the young man who stood before the giant Goliath, trusting God. All the the courageous heroes of the Old Testament who defied various enemies. And here are these religious leaders, crippled by the fear of man. It shows how ripe they were for the judgment that came upon them in 70 AD. It also says what a horrible thing it is in the New Covenant community when the leaders fear men more than God. And yet, this happens. In fact, especially in our day, I am grieved, and maybe you are too, by what we're seeing in the hearts of many Christian leaders that we otherwise respect. One prominent pastor said, this is apocalypse now. Now, the word apocalypse means revelation. And he did a little podcast, Apocalypse Now. And what he's saying is, these days are revealing the hearts of men. And they are revealing the hearts of Christian leaders. And it's disappointing to see that there are some Christian leaders who seem to want to win the favor of the culture and the, the, the community. And so they're afraid to speak out boldly about the wickedness of abortion or to give the reason why abortion is wrong, because every created being is made in the image of God. And then there are others who are courageous to speak out about abortion. But when it comes to critical theory and social justice and wokeness, it's crickets. They're not speaking out against these things. And you wonder why. And I'm hearing conservative, politically conservative commentators, such as on Fox News, who are not Christians, being more clear and more bold against these things than many Christian leaders. Now, I don't mean to say that every sermon needs to be on contemporary political issues. I, I, I would be unfaithful to God's word to do that. We're to declare the word of God. But in our day, there are things that threaten the gospel. And every leader in the Christian community needs to sound a clear trumpet note as to those things that are a threat to the gospel. We need to know where the battle lines are drawn so that we might think clearly and be protected and also be on the gracious offensive against these errors. And so there's a lot of fear of man. But to bring it home to our own hearts, do we not all have to confess that there are remnants of the fear of man in each of our hearts. For some of you, that was a chief besetting sin. You were, above all, a people pleaser. Now, let me be quick to say, sometimes our vices are the flip side of our virtues. People who love people and they love to serve people, and they don't want to displease people, can often fall prey to the fear of man. It's good to want to please people. I want to please people. 
something wrong with you if you want to make enemies and you want people to hate you. Something pathologically wrong with you. I much prefer that people like me than that they hate me. But some of you, because of your temperament and your God-given strength, so want to please people that you want to please people more than sometimes you want to please God. But every one of us has a remnant of the fear of man still left in our hearts. None of us fears God perfectly, right? And I would challenge you, as I challenge myself, to continue to root out the remnants of the fear of man, that people-pleasing tendency from our hearts. And what is it, basically? I don't think I define the fear of man, but essentially, the fear of man, as it's styled in the Bible, is when you care more about what people think than what God thinks. When you do what you do, or you don't do what you don't do, more to not please or to please people, rather than to please or not please God. And the opposite of the fear of man is the fear of God. What matters to God is the most important thing. And we all have remnants of the fear of man in us. Where does it come out in you? Is it in your witness? I don't want to be bold to tell people about Jesus because I'm afraid that they're going to reject me. I'm afraid that I'm going to get a nasty response, though they need this eternal life. I want to protect myself against rejection. Is it in the circle of your friends? Well, if I told my friends what I think they need to hear, they might unfriend me, and I don't want to do that. I don't want to lose friends. Well, who are you seeking to please? Certainly as a pastor, if I fear you, I do not love you. If I fear you and only want to please you, that means I will shrink back from telling you the things you need to hear in favor of what you want to hear or what I think you want to hear. If I fear you, I do not love you, so I dare not fear you. I need to fear God and properly love you so that I tell you graciously, I hope, but what you need to hear, not always what we want to hear. Well, may the Lord increase our love for him and our love for others in our hearts and shrink our self-love, which results in the fear of man. That's the first major point most of the time on that the plotting of Jesus' enemies against him, but now the plan of God for Jesus. They had a plan for Jesus. We're going to kill him, but not during the festival. Now we're going to look at God's plan for Jesus. All right? They wanted to kill him not during the festival. They wanted to wait till people went home, and, and then something would befall Jesus, and they wouldn't be able to corroborate it or, or to confirm it. They want to kill him, but not during the festival. But what was God's plan? I refer you to Matthew's version here. I'm just going to read it to you. Matthew's parallel passage, Matthew 26, 1 and 2. When Jesus had finished all these words, the words of the Olivet Discourse, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Follow that? The enemy said, we want to kill him, but not during the festival. And Jesus says, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. They said, we're going to kill him, but not during the Passover. According to Jesus, God's plan is he's going to die during the festival. First, I want you to note that the plan of God was purposeful. Why was it God's will 
that Jesus would die during the festival. It was the Passover. And do you remember what the Passover was? When God passed over the people, Pharaoh was very stubborn. He refused to let the people of Israel go. God brought nine plagues upon him. Still, he wouldn't relent. Finally, God said, I'm going to bring a final plague. I'm going to send my death angel. And every firstborn male, animal, and son in the household of the Egyptians is going to die. Now, you, my people, I want to spare you. I want that death angel not to strike your house, but to pass over you. So this is what you need to do. You need to kill a lamb. And you need to take its blood and put it on the doorpost and on the lintel of your house. And when the death angel sees that blood, he will pass over you and not strike your home with death. Well, Jesus had to die during the Passover. Why? One chapter, well, a little later in chapter 14 of Mark, we're going to read this in verse 14. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Jesus is going to celebrate that Passover with his disciples. Now listen to what follows in verse 22. While they were eating, they're eating the Passover. He's celebrating that feast which, by the way, celebrated the greatest salvation of the Old Testament. The great redemption of the Old Testament was God passing over his people, springing them from Egypt, delivering them through the Red Sea. That's the great salvation of the Old Testament that is rehearsed again and again in the Psalms and by the prophets. That's the great Old Testament salvation. Now, Jesus is going to celebrate that Passover with his disciples. Verse 22 of Mark 14. While they were eating, he took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take it, take it, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it in new in the kingdom of God. What was Jesus doing? He was taking that blood that represented the lamb, that preserved them in the Old Testament and saying, I am the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. It is my blood that will put an end to all animal sacrifices. I will offer up my life's blood as the one effectual or effective sacrifice for sins. I am that lamb of God that all those other lambs and oxen and bulls pointed forward to. And he actually commandeers the Passover. What arrogance if he wasn't who he said he was to say this, this feast, this great feast of Israel, the Passover, I'm going to reinterpret it, and I'm going to say it applies to me. And the blood is about my blood and my death. What arrogance if it wasn't true, if he wasn't who he said he was. And the Apostle Paul confirms this when he says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, for Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. And then what follows you see, he says here the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover were kind of joined together. And he says, therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. See, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was when they were fleeing and they, they didn't have time for the bread to rise. And, and so the Feast of Unleavened Bread goes with the Passover. Leaven is a symbol of sin in the Bible. And the idea that Jesus is our Passover points to a life 
that is without leaven, a life without sin, because our Passover lamb dies for us to forgive us, but also to rid us, rid our lives of the leaven of sin. So why must Jesus die at the festival? See, his enemy said, not at the festival. God said, at the festival. Why? Because he was the antitype of the Passover lamb, which was the type. That was the type. He was the antitype, the fulfillment. He was the ultimate lamb of God. If that Passover signaled an exodus out of Egypt, Jesus' death by his blood signals the new exodus, an exodus not out of physical bondage in a nation, but freedom from the devil's kingdom, freedom from sin and guilt, and freedom from eternal hell, a new exodus by the true lamb of God. So God had a purpose in the exact timing of Jesus' death. His enemies had a plan, not at the festival. God had a plan, and it was purposeful. I want to make a loud and clear statement by my son dying at the Passover because he is the true Passover lamb that takes away the sin of the world. And so, if anyone is here and you have not believed in Jesus you're like those Egyptians. Those Egyptians were under the wrath of God. Sending a death angel. Death is going to come to your house. And you're like one of those Egyptians. Death is not going to come to your firstborn. Death is going to come to you, my friend. Eternal death in hell if you don't believe in Jesus. Ah, but there's a way to escape that. Even as if they put the blood on the doorposts and lintels, the death angel would pass over them. If you come to Jesus and allow his blood to cover you, so to speak, in other words, allow his death to count for you in the day of judgment, in the day you die, you will not be judged by God. You will be passed over by God. He'll see the blood of the lamb, his son, and say, his sins have been paid for. Her sins have been paid for. I cannot punish twice. I already punished my son for that person's sins. I will not punish you, but I will forgive you and welcome you into heaven. You need the blood of the Lamb of God. But finally and briefly, the plan of God was prevailing. Not only was the plan of God for Jesus to die on this occasion of this feast purposeful, it was prevailing. The enemies of Jesus said, not at the festival. God the Father and Christ the Son said, no, at the festival. Well, whose plan prevailed? What actually happened? Well, this was Tuesday, two days before the festival. By Thursday evening, Jesus was being hunted like an animal. By Friday, he was dead, crucified on a Roman cross, in reality, sacrificed for the sins of God's people. What does that tell you about the plans of men versus the plan of God? It teaches us that God's plan will prevail. God is the absolute sovereign. It is his will that will be done no matter what man wills and plans and schemes and plots. Man proposes, God disposes. In more biblical language, Proverbs 16.1, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Proverbs 16.9, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord, it will stand. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the heart, in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. 
Proverbs 21.30, there is no wisdom and no understanding and no counsel against the Lord. Psalm 33.11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart from generation to generation. Why was Jesus crucified? Was he just a hapless victim who couldn't avoid it? Not at all. Who planned the death of Jesus and planned it when it happened? Acts 2 and verse 23, on the day of Pentecost, Peter says, This man, Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross. In chapter 4, 27 and 28, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Not only does God overrule his enemies as to when Jesus will be killed, he overrules them as to what will be accomplished by his death. His enemies thought at last, we've rid the earth of this nemesis. We got rid of this one who was stealing our thunder and stealing our popularity. Now he's dead. But they were the unwitting instruments of God using Jesus to be the savior of the world because three days after killing him, he rose from the dead, appeared to many, ascended to the right hand of the Father, sent forth his spirit, and his spirit has empowered his church for 2,000 years to call out a people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. What they thought they were going to accomplish was only the will of God. They were the unwitting instruments to accomplish God's purposes contrary to their own. What does that mean for us, brothers and sisters? It means that we are not disciples of a hapless martyr who was helpless before his enemies and could do nothing to prevent his own death. What does he say in John 10? I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. And you know what that means, brothers and sisters? the sovereign will of God prevailing over all the wills of men. It means that Romans 8.28 is really true. As R.C. Sproul said, there's no maverick molecule in the universe. I add to that, there's no autonomous atom in the universe. All things work together for good to those who love God and are, are the called according to his purpose. Because no matter what the designs and plans and schemes and plots of men against you, God superintends it all. Man proposes, but God disposes. We can take great comfort in the fact that everything in our lives is coming from the sovereign hand of a Father who loves us. And though we may not see it now, we will see it someday in this life, if not in this life, in eternity, how God is working all things together for our good. He is the absolute sovereign. Man's will doesn't rule on the earth. God's will gets the capital W, and it's to our comfort and encouragement. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you that in the compass of these two short verses, you reveal so much truth about yourself. Yes, the enemies of your son had a plan, but it was your plan that was carried out. You superintended their plans, and how we thank you that you are superintending all the events of our lives, the good things, and even the painful things, the agonizing things. And we believe you, Lord, even when we cannot see it. We believe someday we will. That all things are working together for good.
those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And we thank you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's close with him.